We are now uh, two weeks away from the Feast of Pentecost, which is the capstone of the great 50 days of Easter, sort of uh, completes the celebration of the great 50 days. Pentecost means 50th, so we get to that, and it has associations with a number of things. I mention this because um, I thought I'd say some things about the Holy Spirit on Pentecost the bishop will have the opportunity to say some things to you about the Holy Spirit. But I want to say some things about the Holy Spirit as well, because today in the book of Acts, we have something that some biblical scholars refer to as uh, the Gentile Pentecost. And so it has some associations uh, for me with regard to the present state of the Episcopal Church, because this is an example of how God's inclusivity and how God's spirit moves where it will. And so I want to say some things about that. And then from the gospel, we have one of my favorite parts, Jesus, you know, part of his farewell discourse. And he says to his apostles and his disciples that I have called you friends. And he is speaking now about a level of friendship that is very, very important, a way of thinking about our relationship uh, with God and one another. And clearly the Savior thinks friendship is important and uh, uses that terminology to describe uh, now his relationship, not, no longer as servants, but as friends. And maybe to say then some things about our understanding of friendship and its importance and centrality to uh, spiritual nurture and maturity. So that's the program, God willing. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Perhaps the most monumental decision uh, in the New Testament period and earlier was the decision by the church to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The issue uh, between being a Jew or not loomed long. In fact, the controversy between these two worldviews uh, makes the ordination of women to the episcopate and the priesthood look like amateur night. <laughs> <laughs> or the fight over same gender relations. A cakewalk compared to what this produced in the clash of the history of ideas. We're talking about the relationship between the Hebrew worldview and the Hellenistic worldview, or we would call it the Greek worldview. And these two were uh, in some ways bumping up against one another, and there, was, there are different ways to understand what that might mean. And so how Christianity accommodated this coming together was very important, and it wasn't always easy but uh, maybe it's part of the genius of how we see uh, the relationship between things that are unseen and things that are seen. You know, one of the things that the readings give up to us today to some degree, I don't want to preach a lot about it, is that uh, 
we're overcoming the view that the spiritual is to be preferred over the material. And this will haunt Christian, Christians for, for always. Still does. There, there are people who believe that the spiritual or sort of, I don't know, uh, idealism in some way is to be preferred over the concrete and the, the, the you know, and it isn't. We believe that uh, God has redeemed the creation by sending Jesus a human being who now affirms the truth and the goodness of our humanity and the truth or the goodness of the material world. Archbishop William Temple, who died in, during World War II, said Christianity is the most materialistic of all of the world's religions. And he did not mean that as a slam, but as something that was very uh, important to say. In any case, we have this uh, uh, Gentile Pentecost, and here's the, the, the important thing. Remember my jag. It's not important what the Bible says. It's important what the Bible means. It's important that we make some effort to be a student of the, of the Bible in whatever way that may be appropriate to us. In this text in, in Greek, uh, the Gentiles are called ethne. What word do we get from that? Ethnic. Yeah. And one of the ways you could interpret the Gentiles would be those people. <laughs> right? Now there's another term that uh, is used here too, Laos, not the country. That means our folks. So we have a passage about those people receiving the Holy Spirit outside the normal channels. In fact, they hadn't been baptized yet, which is what one of the places we say the Holy Spirit is bestowed on us, right, at our baptism. They were already manifesting the signs of the Spirit, and they hadn't been baptized. This is the conclusion, by the way, this very short reading of the Cornelius the centurion and his being uh, brought into, you know, into the Christian church but through his baptism. But the point of this is uh, they were astounded that this was the case. The wording in the, in the reading is that it was those people, the Gentiles, and they were not contrasted here by the Jews, but those who were circumcised meaning that they identified themselves at, with the sign of their self-identification. You and I may think it's pretty peculiar to think of circumcision in that way, but remember, we're talking about the ancient Near East, and in uh, Abraham and everybody else, circumcision loomed large in terms of something you needed to do. In fact, the Christian church will struggle with this mightily for the first two or three hundred years with regard to whether or not uh, males needed to be circumcised in order to be Christians. So Peter and his group sort of are in that area, and Paul and Luke, for sure, who wrote the book of Acts, would say, Don't need, it's not necessary to, to do that. You should not require, that should not be a requirement to be in. Those who are circumcised, fine, 
You don't need to circumcise people uh, beyond that if they're not practicing Jews. It's not necessary for them to be circumcised. So this was a big issue. But there's a point, a political point being made here in this reading about this. And I read this and I thought to myself, you know, this issue of um, our people and those people is still with us, isn't it, in some form? You know, in the minutiae of church life, people who get familiar, longtime church members and local church communities, the people who get involved in gatekeeping and are very active in doing things, they look at people who are new and who don't know or who seem to be now coming in here and doing stuff. They feel a little bit like this, you know, uh, our people and, and those people. In the big issues that are in front of the Episcopal Church, you know, our people are the people who are people who believe rightly. You know, there's a constituency in the Episcopal Church. It is a vocal, you need to know, it is a vocal minority. The majority of Episcopalians, for the most part, are on board with how things are moving. And the issues about uh, why people don't come anymore or why there's all that, uh, as it turns out, the, the, the most recent studies have nothing to do with whether or not it's an issue that drives them away. It's that they don't believe it anymore. That's the subject of another sermon, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I t uh, this is, I don't, you know, I'm wandering around here, but in 1994, uh, Mother Morrison and I took a class together, just by coincidence, up at the GTU, up at the Pacific School of Religion, and it was taught by Wade Clark Roof, who was the, is the guy on baby boomer spirituality. He wrote a book called A Nation of Seekers. Famous, famous, uh, teaches down at... Uh, UC uh, in Santa Barbara. And he became an Episcopalian. He's a member of Trinity Church in Santa Barbara. Wade Clark Roof said, the 1950s is turning out for, for sociologists to be the most aberrant decade of the 20th century. Because it masked an overall decline in uh, mainline religion in the United States that began before the turn of the 20th century. And then when World War II came, it abruptly stopped this, and we began to have then a surge uh, back into the uh, mainline churches after the war. Church attendance went up again and, and was at a, at, a, at a much higher level. But then things began to settle down. I mean, when you have a guy, one of the guys who dropped the bomb on Hiroshima go into a Trappist monastery after he gets out of the service, you realize that they're working off some stuff, right? They're things that they felt keenly that maybe they needed to do. So that means that people my age were exposed to a huge amount of religion of a fairly traditional sort. But it also means that most of the people my age aren't going to the same church if they're going that their parents went to. So there's a whole lot there. It does have something to do maybe with our people and those people because what this is about is the spirit of God moving 
in the hearts and minds of people now always to uh, err on the side of inclusion. And even though it seems kind of um, half-baked, Peter says, well, I guess as long as they've got the spirit, we might as well baptize them. <laughs> right? I mean, pragmatism rears its head even in the biblical period. So we bank them home to God through the sacrament of baptism. But they began to learn something about how the Spirit works. Now, St. Luke, who wrote Luke's Gospel and wrote the book of Acts, is the great theologian of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And his Gospel is about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus in his earthly ministry. That's one of the major themes in the Gospel according to St. Luke. And the book of Acts is about the transfer of the presence of the Holy Spirit from the person of Jesus in his earthly ministry now to the, the, the people of God we call the church. So we become both the beneficiaries and the fiduciaries of the Holy Spirit. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. If we were to say, what are, what are the ways, you've heard me say this before, if someone were to ask, Am I making any spiritual progress? What, what could I look to to find out if I was making any spiritual progress of any kind? Well, one of the ways you could look is to see whether or not it has become a little more easy for you to express in relationship the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Are these things becoming a little easier for you, at least from time to time? <laughs> right? And do you find now that you can suffer fools a little more gladly when you need to? Are you able in some ways to remain non-anxious in the front of the anxiousness and reactivity of other people? Those are the things that the Holy Spirit does. So this story is about how people's hearts get transformed and we begin to say, let's not think of those people and our people, but of the people of God. And that the Holy Spirit represents, we'll talk about this on Trinity Sunday, the Holy Spirit represents unitive being. So the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the unifying agency that brings together peoples in relationship but also is the internal unifying process that helps us now become whole internally so that we understand some way more deeply and more fully God's will and purpose for us you know we've talked a little bit here about triangulation you know we all get into triangles with people that's what causes a lot of stress. Well, we get triangulated with ourselves. Let's see, what does that mean? Well, my parents' expectations of the career that I should have, my own career uh, um, yearnings, and the present circumstance in which I find myself, which is neither of those two. Just, I'm just making it up. That's a triangle. That's an internal one. So you're struggling now with those, with those things, right? Or your responsibilities and obligations and also with regard to your own personal vision about who you are and what it is you want to do. 
So those are things that are part of this. And the Spirit of God is that which is present to you to help bring, bring some unifying presence to that. If you open yourself to it. And what Peter and the other disciples had to see today is I guess we have to see that God's unifying work is present here with these people who manifest the signs of the Spirit. And I think that the Episcopal Church needs always to be conscious of this and to determine that as we move in, in certain directions that the Spirit of God is present in what it is that's happening. doesn't mean it isn't going to be hard to work out and difficult for a lot of people, but that is, that's where I think we should, the default position should be always to see the work of the Spirit. Now, one of the ways I think the Spirit gets advanced in, in relationship is through understanding maybe a little something about friendship and its various kinds. Here's a definition. Friendship, strictly speaking, is the mutual goodwill of two persons who accept each other profoundly. In my own life, uh, I've, I've ha gotten into relationships with people that I never initially thought would, I would be their friend. Or, or particularly was not particularly interested in being their friend, <laughs> nor they with me. <laughs> Sometimes friendships develop because you're thrown together, right? So, you know, the intensity of, of that. Um, I like to watch a lot of stuff about World War II. And since my parents were all in World War II and so on, when we were children, uh, no one was talking about this. No one was talking about it, of the guys who were in it, until they started to get older. Or maybe a, a once in a while after a few drinks, you would hear some of them tell you a story about their experience. But now we're beginning to, to learn some things, and one of the things we've learned is that the, the depth of the friendship that these men had with one another who were in the middle of that. It was the most profound and strong bond often they've ever had in their life. Something they never forget. If you've ever seen the television show Band of Brothers or the and you listen to the guys in the in the E company who are still alive talking about each other in this in this situation, you you realize what they went through, of course. Yikes. But also uh, what, what, what the strong friendships that they had that uh, continued beyond being in the war and still do for them and are, and are life-giving. So we have some understanding of this uh, in, our, in, in, in our present circumstance. In the ancient world, friendship was highly valued. And it was talked about in a variety of ways. Friendship almost had in the ancient languages as many words for it as the, the Greeks did for love. So there were different kinds of friendships and uh, different requirements and so on. But uh, always the desire to have an authentic friendship. And in the New Testament, the great friendship part of the, of, of the Bible in the New Testament, I think, is John, the writings of, of, that are attributed to John. And in the Gospel for today, Jesus now is calling the disciples friends. And he's, by extension, he said, he's really saying, the friendship that I am speaking of 
is something now that you need to model to one another. John believed that because God loved us, we can love people. So there was something about the, 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 the relationship of love between God and us that allows us to do this. It gives us the, the ability. And maybe it has something to do with the spirit, right? God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us so that these qualities are part of our true self made in the image and likeness of God. And part of that image and likeness is the ability to love and to see that it's the greatest force for transformation, new life, growth, whatever nuevo huevo term you want to attach to it. It's very important. And then by extension, the cultivation of friendship, some sort of mutuality that is important. Sometimes... Um, we forget is that it's important for us to be friends with the people that are closest to us and that we love the most. So it always becomes a big question about how come it's hardest for us to do that sometimes when we're distracted, busy, tired, don't feel good, uh, or just uh, forgot that uh, that's an important thing. So whenever I read this section, it sort of reminds me that I need to do that. It might interest you to know the first part of this reading is one of the readings for weddings. It's, it's one of the, the gospels that is is uh, uh, you you're, you can read at weddings. You know the, the wedding liturgy. There are set readings uh, that you can read that are, are are read at weddings. Occasionally, we tell people, well, you can read something else if you if you want. And so every once in a while, I'll have somebody say to me, oh. I want you to read that beautiful passage from the book of Ruth. Where thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge my pen. And I say, well, you know, we could read it, but uh, Ruth is speaking to Naomi in this passage and not to Boaz. <laughs> and when I was in Sausalito, I actually had one person say, oh, well, they won't know. <laughs> of course, they were right. <laughs> but I was able to talk them out of it. You know? That's a wonderful book about friendship, though. Ruth, Naomi, how they understood and came to, to become friends. What a thing. So I think that what this reminds me of whenever I read this section is that uh, we have an intense relationship with Jesus that is one of friendship. And when he did that for us, he changed it from a hierarchical relationship to one that was mutual. And he, he, here's the thing, too. John believed this. If God were a human being walking around on the earth, this is who he'd be like. This is what he'd say. And this is what he'd do. So in his words and in his works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. But... This isn't just some highfalutin theological testimony or wild-eyed idealism. We have discovered as the community out of which this gospel emerged that he gave us tools that we can use. 
And because of his calling us friends, and now entering into a mutual relationship of friendship, both with him and with God and with each other, we feel now in a position to do the same things that he did. That we can actually understand him as the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development. And this isn't some remote activity that we're going to keep talking about that has no application to the ordinary and commonplace in our everyday living. So when Jesus calls you a friend, that means that you have a mutual relationship with him that is one of intimacy and not one of uh, one up and one down. And that, therefore, should influence the way in which you engage in your friendships in the world. All of us know what it's like to have fair-weather friends. Remember that term when I was a kid? My family referred a lot to fair-weather friends, you know? Maybe we've been a fair-weather friend, you know? You know, sometimes it's a little tougher than we think, uh, just dismissing that. You know, what happens if your friendship and loyalty is tested because somebody has done something that is bad or alleged to have? Do you maintain your friendship with them or do you turn their, your back on them? It's hard. It's not an easy question, is it? But sometimes people think, well, I guess, you know, we'll have to, to do this. You know, what would it be like if you thought Bernie Madoff were your friend? (laughs) 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 You know, of course, as it turned out, Bernie Madoff may have called you a friend and then turned his back on you, which appears to have happened more than once in this whole enterprise. Right? But that may sharpen it a little bit about that. So, this week, work on your friendships. Give thanks for the friendship you have with God. You may not have even thought about it or tested it out ever, but it's always there as a free resource. And it comes to you through knowing your true self, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. See if you can be, um, in big and small ways, uh, someone who begins to stop this, those people and uh, our people and, in, and work together for that kind of... Uh, unity that uh, we all seek under God. Amen. Okay, cafe.